Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Making a Killing, the Hudson Institute podcast on how corruption is reshaping global politics and security. I'm Nate Sibley, but this week I'm handing the reins to Paul Massaro. He spoke recently with Ed Lucas, a non-resident senior fellow at CEPA and one of the world's leading experts on global kleptocracy and how it fits in with broader authoritarian tactics to undermine democracy. He's a towering figure to those of us who have been working on this issue, and I hope you enjoy their chat just as much as I did. As you may have heard, the US and UK have indicated that they will target Putin's inner circle with sanctions and other measures should Russia proceed with further aggression against Ukraine. But this has prompted many, including prominent British MPs, uh, to point out the contradiction or even hypocrisy of threatening sanctions when dirty Russian money continues to course through the city of London, the shell companies of Delaware and other Western financial centres. And that's exactly where Ed and Paul begin their fascinating conversation today. So this is Paul Massaro uh, with the Kleptocracy Initiative, adjunct fellow. Very excited today to be joined by Edward Lucas. And, uh, you know, welcome, Ed. Nice to be here. Thank you, Paul. So, Edward, we we were just chatting and just for the sort of audience's awareness, Edward is one of sort of the early voices in warning about kleptocracy and and a longtime counter-kleptocracy hand. And in fact, when I was just getting my bearings on this, there were a few shops I went to, one of which was the Kleptocracy Initiative uh, and my good friend Nate Sibley, but another was uh, seeing Edward speak and actually joining a roundtable at the German Marshall Fund back in the day where Edward spoke very eloquently on this and was one of my early influences on getting into this. So thank you, Edward, for helping me discover sort of my passion and enlightening me to this, what I see really as the existential threat of our time, that is transnational kleptocracy. So uh, great to have you here. And I guess when I was getting into this, and this was like 2014-15, right? Counter-kleptocracy was still kind of this, you don't really talk about it. You go and you go see the national security experts and, well, corruption's a development issue. Don't really worry about it. It's a secondary thing. Nice to have when we can, but it's certainly not a top issue. And now it does seem like the game has changed today. We've had sort of the the... The president with the counter-corruption strategy. We've had the Congress with the with the counter-kleptocracy caucus, uh, and we and we do seem to be getting near some kind of transatlantic approach on fighting corruption. But it is kind of late in the game. It's 2022 now. Uh, it's all happened pretty fast, but it's all kind of been in the last year that it's happened. So I guess my question for you is, you know, why were we so late to recognize this problem that seems to have been going on for a very long time? You certainly made that argument when I when when I saw you speak uh, all those years ago. Um, and have we sufficiently recognized it now? Um, it's been going on for a very long time. We haven't recognized it sufficiently. And I'm very cross about this. And I'm not sure what else I could have done. But I, I wrote my book, The New Cold War, in 2007. It came out in 2008. And the central message of that book was, if you think that only money matters, you're defenseless when people attack you using money. And I think that still ha- still holds that we've went through years after 1991 of thinking that democracy had triumphed and therefore capitalism was politically neutral. And the best way to deal with 
big difficult countries or indeed small difficult countries was to trade with them and invest with them and that would bring us all closer and there was a very clear narrative arc to that and we had all this sort of nonsense about how countries that have mcdonald's franchises in them never um go to war with each other and it and it it all made complete sense except it wasn't grounded in fact and we saw I mean, already in the early 90s, we saw the beginnings of Russian use of dirty money when the old KGB slush funds started being recycled through the West. And I remember, I think the thing that really struck me in the early 90s was when I learned a new Russian word, which was afshorka. And afshorka is an (laughs) offshore bank account. And I'd studied Russian in the sort of Soviet era, and I was quite well grounded in Russian classical literature and Soviet jargon. And this to me was one of my first sort of hints of what post-Soviet Russian was going to be like. And, and very initially, I thought this was rather good, that an offshore had a sort of romantic feel to it of someone who was getting around all this sort of bureaucracy and nonsense that was they were economic freedom. Right. But actually, that was that was the beginning of it. And we are still wrestling with that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's so funny you say, uh, oh, it could actually be good, right? Because there was that argument way early on that, oh, well, a little corruption is useful. A little corruption cuts red tape or, you know, helps with early development and so on and so forth. And I, I I certainly think that academics have kind of backed away from that at this point. I hardly ever hear that argument anymore, that corruption has a positive side. But that was certainly um, certainly something in that early literature. So, I mean, I it does feel like we kind of uh, uh, um, missed the initial indications. Although sometimes when I speak with, you know, I've spoken with kind of the FBI who have said, you know, they were very concerned about capital flight in the day before they were kind of... Um, derailed by the war on terror, which, you know, completely moved our resources uh, into that sphere. So I guess that kind of gets me to, to to something I've really wanted to talk about and, and, and kind of maybe lay out in a little bit of detail. Um, and that is like, how does this really affect our politics? How does this degrade our national security in very concrete ways? And can you kind of walk us through like that? Like there was a recent piece in the British news that was very, very interesting on the CCP uh, kind of using strategic corruption yes. to influence parliament. Well, I think there's, it's, it's, I mean, there's, the, the, the answer to this would take a book or possibly several books, but I'll hit you some headlines. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's different layers to it. I mean, one is the actual bribery of named politicians while they're in office. And that's closely followed by offering sinecures to politicians for after they leave office. Um, and that is a, a a major thing that politicians think, well, once I leave this not very well paid and rather difficult job, I will go on to be um, working for some Chinese inter- Chinese backed international institution or some Russian backed pipeline or whatever. And the, the thing about that is it's not even illegal. I mean, there may be some reputational damage, but in most countries that 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 you, you it's pretty risk free to do that. Um, you've also got donations going into political parties and think tanks and so on, which is again not really illegal. And I think what that highlights is one of the great difficulties here is working out what is really illegal money and what is a normal part of a free society. And it's much harder than you'd think. And we, we we see this a lot in Britain, where we have these things called unexplained wealth orders, which are aimed at going after the assets of kleptocrats. But a lot of the time, when they're asked, can you, how do you explain your wealth? They say, I own an aluminium company, or I own a shipping company, yeah. and or I own a bank. And it's, it's not really unexplained. And, and, and we've allowed this um, grey zone between... Yeah, there's 
clearly sort of organised crime, Tony Soprano sort of um, dirty money, and there's you know, pretty clean money of a normal business that would would thrive anywhere, which has been run by hardworking, talented people, and they've made their money out of it. But then there's this great grey zone in the middle where our legal institutions are really, and our criminal justice institutions are really not set up to deal with that. And they they look at it and they go, well, it's not obvious a crime's being committed, and there's no compelling national security reason to say no to it, so let the deal go ahead. And a great many of those deals happen, of course, in, in London. I mean, what is the what is the answer to that? And I, and I guess I also like as you point this out, I, I, you know, it's so many of the crimes, sort of the, the the really visceral crimes that led to consolidation of these industries, that led to the rise of the oligarchs and stuff like that, happened in the '90s, right? And I mean, like the the like, I mean, of course, there's plenty of financial crime still going on and 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 support, but like the the really you know mafioso style crimes happen. And and I and I think about kind of the Global Magnitsky Act, for example, which you know by doctrine, only looks at crimes, corruption that has happened in the past five years. So if you're only looking at that, you can make these businesses look pretty legit at this point, you yeah. know? So, I mean, what what do we need to do? Well, I think the first thing to accept is it's a bit like terrorism. There is no silver bullet. There's not just one. I mean, if we'd started earlier, it would have been easy. We've neglected this problem for a long time. And the result is it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult and it will involve um, a lot of messy trade-offs and there will be cases where we've done something that was probably 51% right and 49% wrong and we're going to have to live with that. So that's, you know, we start off in a position, I think, of, of humility and contrition for having uh, allowed this to develop so so much. Then I think you can break it down into different things. One is to try and create a sort of national security lens on this. And if you have um, dirty money coming from, I don't know, take a random example, you know, Brazil. Okay, maybe it's based on deforestation. The Amazon, that's bad. and We may want to sort of discourage, discourage it. But there's a different level to the threat than if it's coming from people who are closely associated with the Kremlin or the Chinese Communist Party. So we, I, I think that having clear national security threat assessments that are published and uh, are backed up with the full sort of force of the um, parliaments and, and, and governments is a good starting point because that not only shapes the regulatory and legis and, and, and sort of criminal justice environment, it also shapes the kind of social and normative environment that if you know this is a country run by people who are, have got a, a, a million Uyghurs in mind control camps or a, about you know, the habit of regularly attacking their neighbours, you feel a bit differently about doing business with them. So I think that, that the, you know, having public threat assessments is, is important. I think the second thing is to take a leaf out of the terrorism book and say we need a whole of government and whole of society approach. We don't deal with terrorism just with drone strikes, although drone strikes may be useful. We don't deal with terrorism just with um, freezing bank accounts, although that may also um, be useful. But you, you see in the counterterrorism world, whether it's in the United States or in Britain, you have everything from you know, universities who are worried about radicalization through to public diplomacy and messaging, through to the criminal justice system, the intelligence community, to financial supervisors, and of course the military. And they're all sort of working together, trying to see, um, assess the different bits of the threat and looking at sometimes quite complicated packages of measures that will deal with it. And I think we need to take the same attitude to hostile state activity and see that dirty money is, you know, whereas terrorism fundamentally uses explosives. I 
think hostile state activity fundamentally uses uses money. And so that's the sort of the tip of the spear for, for our adversaries. And that's where we need to be countering them. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, and, and couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the complication, as you say, is that this is a this is a wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. You know, I mean, our uh, the the private sector does not use bombs, so so identifying terrorists, you know, only terrorists are doing this. Whereas whereas in this case, like the revolving door exists between the private sector and government very clearly, and all authoritarians have done is kind of stepped in there and said, "We can do this too." You know, I mean, we're we're creating private sector looking companies, and we're we're creating uh, entities that that look like things you could work for very easily. Um, and being able to point those out and say, no, this is not the same, that the authoritarian revolving door is not the same as the revolving door, whatever you think about the revolving door, um, going and working for a dictatorship uh, after you're done is is not the same. In fact, it is a threat to national security. Yes. It's it's hard to do. So well, I, think I, I, I just... Yeah, uh, it used to, I, mean, I, I think you've put your finger on one of the very important things is that most of our problems are not created by Russia or China, they're exploited right. by Russia or China. You know, there were no tanks um, rolling down the streets of um, you know Delaware or Wall Street or the City of London saying create and you know, right. make, make let there be shell companies and if you don't we open fire. No, we we set up shell companies because we were <laughs> um, greedy and and, and I mean some, one yes. lot of people were greedy, another lot of people were complacent or naive, and it, and 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 no voter has, I think has ever cast a ballot in an election or in a referendum saying yes we think we you know that th- th- there shall be um, companies that disguise the ownership of the people who own them. They crept up on us. And when the joint stock company was first invented, nobody conceived of the idea that it would be used for anonymity. It was simply a way of taking a business risk, which didn't leave you personally on the hook if it went wrong. And it was used for all sorts of commendable reasons. It was the foundation of modern capitalism. But somewhere along the way, we got these strange things of um, you know, whether it's Scottish limited partnerships or North Dakota trusts or um, the, right. you know, the different sorts of shell companies and bearer shares and all these things, which just sort of crept up almost like weeds in the garden. And then the Russians and the Chinese and the others came along and said, hey, this is really useful. We can use this for laundering the money we steal from our own people. And we can also use it for concealing the money that we're using to attack the West. And I would give another example is with the internet. That When the internet was set up, no one said, hey, this is going to be a wonderful way for spreading disinformation. And we're going to have um, websites where you have no idea who um, owns them yeah. and only a completely anonymous messaging and so on. No, this all just sort of came along because no one was paying attention. And now we have a serious problem with it. So again and again, these are problems of our own creation. Now, the good thing about that is we allowed these problems to develop. Well, we can fix them. We can make life difficult yes. for, for internet trolls or for shell companies or whatever. And that will have many benefits. But one of them will be dealing with the threat from kleptocrats. Extremely well put. And, and I think it's just such an important thing to recognize that this is the exploitation of our structures by dictators. You know, it's just a... It's 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 foundational to solving this problem. So I actually want to dive into something you talked about, and that's the you know that that no one voted for any of this, right? This is kind of like something that's kind of you know cropped up like weeds and and so on and so forth. And you know you're you you are now uh, looking for votes. You are running for parliament um, on a on a counter kleptocracy platform, which you know I, I think many in the any many in the united states might say we'll never we'll never play with the people right no, no american will ever understand i mean it's just we were you know we were joking before this that politicians many politicians you know when you tell them kleptocracy like klepto klept what you know cryptography like what you know um and, and certainly 
you know, the 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 voters may may feel the same way. So I, I guess tell me about how you've been able to connect this to, you know, the concerns of average voters, because, you know, I, you know, I work for the Congress and, 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 and it really is, I think, critical that constituencies kind of understand what, what's going on here in part also because I think they are intuiting what's going on here. I think they are feeling the effects of it and saying this isn't fair, but they can't quite put their finger on what the problem is because it's hidden behind all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think there's several answers to that. And one is that although voters may not be absolutely up to speed with the ins and outs of um, trust and company service providers and the Financial Action Task Force and this kind of world that we and I suspect many of the listeners to your um, podcast live in, um, there is a general feeling of um, dissatisfaction but bordering on disgust with politics. Um, People don't like the idea that it's um, insiders manipulating things behind the scenes and that's not really a left-right thing. I mean, you may, people on the right may blame um, Soros and people on the left may blame blame the um, QAnon or whatever. But I mean, there's a feeling that there's there's stuff going on that we don't like. And if you can start off on the basis that you want to, you care about trust and truth in politics, that's not a bad place to start with voters. Another another thing is that the um, particular constituency, district, but in in Britain, we call them constituencies where I'm running, is the centre of of London. It's called the cities of London and Westminster. So it has the city of London. Um, It's home to all our great financial and legal and cultural institutions. And the voters there are on the whole, perhaps you know, above average high information voters, and many of them work in this world or around it, and so they see it happening all around them, both at work and then when they come home and they, you know, the oligarch up the road who's building a basement, um, you know, one of these submarine basements, which are very popular in London, where you can't build up, so you build down, and then this has effects on the, you know, the rest of the street and and so on. And, and people have just say in, in in the big apartment blocks, um, when these are sort of you know, multi-million pound apartments sometimes, and, the, and they don't know who the, who owns the flat upstairs because it's a BVI, British Virgin Island right. company. So, so I think I mean, it, would, it would be harder to run this campaign if I was running in the north of Scotland or um, you know, in the, somewhere in the um, you know, a rural constituency somewhere else. But, but particularly here, it does resonate. And I just think it's – and the, the third thing is that it's a chance to change the Overton window simply by saying, I'm a candidate, I care about this. Yes. And I have constituency events where I had Bill Browder, for example, on 120 Lib Dems, which is the party that I've been selected by. I, I mean, a lot of them had heard of Bill Browder. I don't think very few of them had actually met him. And to have an hour and a half of discussion with Bill about Magnitsky sanctions, where we are, what we're trying to do, yeah, that made my constituency activists, the people who go out and knock on doors for me and, and push leaflets through letterboxes, they now see this matters. And they and and, see, and in the end, you just have to start somewhere. Either, or you sit on the sidelines and complain, but I don't like doing that. So that's why I'm, I've decided to jump into the icy water. Fantastic. No, I, I, I love it. So let's, let's uh, pivot the, the conversation a little bit, particularly to the UK, given that you're running for the seat, given that you have this expertise, and given that you're a Brit. <laughs> um, and, and I mean... I think that it's, you know, it's not a surprise to anyone listening to this podcast. You know, to me, the the two great financial hubs in the world are the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and if we cleaned up our acts, you know, we could solve 
70% of the problem right there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just, it seems like uh, there's a lot of room uh, to, to fix this problem if we, if we really focused on it. Um, and yet, I guess there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of problems, it still seems like to me, um, with regard to the UK approach to this. Um, not the least of which, as I, as I mentioned sort of up top, this, this recent case of the CCP operative that MI5 has exposed, and that seems to be just the tip of the, the, tip of the iceberg on the kind of influence industry we're seeing. Now, are you familiar with this case? Can you, can you talk about that at all? I'm exhaustively familiar with this case, not least it's not new. It's been, uh, this was uh, first reported, Mrs. Christine Lee, who is a British citizen of Chinese extraction and was first written about by the London Times, where I'm a columnist in 2017. And she features at length in an excellent book called Hidden Hand by Clive Hamilton and Mareke Olberg, two um, friends of mine who specialize in Chinese influence operations. And I think I've yet to meet an MP um, and probably it probably would be true of remember the House of Lords as well, who hasn't met Christine Lee, and she's absolutely ubiquitous and makes no secret. She's the legal advisor of the Chinese em- em- embassy. She is a prominent figure in various British-Chinese <coughs> friendship associations. Um, she didn't have on her visiting card that she works for the United Front Work Department, yeah. um, but I don't think it was any secret to anyone. And so there's a... Um, there's some puzzlement going on in um in in this uh in this country about why now and you know, what's what's you know, what's the you know, what's the um you know, the timing and i think that it may be that she'd developed a particularly effective um line of influence that had got our security service um worried so there could be some sort of counter, counterintelligence thing going on. I mean, maybe that they just wanted to send a signal to the Chinese that you know there's, there's far too many people like Christine Lee around, and we're just yeah. picking on the most prominent one to put, you know, pour encourager les autres, as the French would say, to encourage the others. Um, it could be that there was some political timing. Mean, the government was keen to um, you know, throw a dead cat on the table in order to just distract us from everything else that's going. On. And I, I, don't, I don't know, but I mean, I mean and what what this shows is that it's, you know, she hasn't broken any law. Um, we, I don't think, yeah. they, I don't think she's get, she's, she's not going to be arrested, and she can't be deported because she's a British citizen, as far as we know. And this sort of stuff in a free society is very hard to police. That the best antidote to it would be if MPs said, sorry, I hate, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is absolutely reprehensible. It's bathed in blood for decades. And now it's got a million people in mind control camps. So thanks very much. I'm not coming to your party. That would be a, a would be the kind of you know, normative immune system uh, reacting right. to this sort of thing. But unfortunately, as I've repeatedly say, people are very greedy and very naive and very complacent. And they just don't realize that um, the dangers that they're, 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 they're faced with. Right. So our 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 are British intel agencies getting frustrated with with the with what's going on? I mean, it 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 kind of seems. I mean, again, I'm I'm totally outside observer here, but I mean, with regard to that Parliament report uh, that that came out a few years ago, that kind of made this claim that you know the 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 government can't even finish cases against oligarchs because they run out of money. Is there is there a feeling? of of helplessness almost among the British government. It's like, what do we do about the fact that all of these kleptocrats are in London? 
<laughs> you know, well, I think um, it's it, it depends. You know, the, the, as in the United States, there isn't one thing called you know government. We have different bits of yeah. government, and they're doing often very different things. And um, so we have our defence secretary Ben Wallace has taken a commendably robust approach on everything from Ukraine to Baltic Sea security, and has. Um, you know, He's obviously in public, you know, a loyal member of the government, and I wouldn't presume to know his his private thoughts, but I think one can infer that he's in favour of a much tougher line on on Russia, and he's written an excellent essay on you know countering Putin's yeah. approach to Ukraine, and so I would give him you know, that, you know, yeah ten out of ten for for what he's doing in the in our defence ministry and with the armed forces. I think there's uh the Russia strategy, which Britain adopted a few years ago, was commendable, and we have a very well-resourced Russia unit in our government, which is sort of has the full authority of the cabinet office. If you imagine, it's sort of joint in the American context, it would be sort of on the National Security Council, uh, and that looks at everything from Russian influence in the Western Balkans and in Ukraine to helping other allies stand up to Russia, um, looking at the high-end. Russian cyber threats and making sure we're up to speed on that. The problem with it, it doesn't really look inwards. It looks outwards. So it's about Russia's threats outside Britain. And the gap in our armoury is really we don't have an effective way of countering Russian influence in Britain. We have a thing from our security service, MI5, which is quite small and not terribly well resourced. It doesn't do either dirty money or disinformation, which are two of the most important things. So it's uh, yeah, constrained on that. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the Russia inquiry. I was the first witness to our intelligence and security committee, um, which did an, a much a rather delayed inquiry into Russia. And they um, took a lot of classified evidence as well, which um, I, I think you informed them very deeply about the breadth and depth of the threat. And their report very nearly never was published. First of all, Boris Johnson tried to stop it being published before the election in 2019. And then he tried to have the committee composition changed so it wouldn't come out after the election. And that was actually one of the reasons I decided to go into politics. I felt this was you know, almost a kind of coup. Yeah. coup. Um, and it's difficult. We, we don't have a... Um, you know, the, the threat awareness within Britain is still not that great. And our different bits of government aren't really joined up. And until they are, Russia and China will find it they're getting a very easy ride. Is part of this connected to, I mean, I'm sure it is, you know, kind of the the, the financial services lobby, um, po- possibly even kind of concerns about the future of the UK after Brexit and like what is, I guess, I guess again, from from sort of an outsider's perspective, something that constantly gets thrown around is like, uh-oh, you know, the, the, the Brits are going to have to do even more, you know, money washing for dictators because... That's what they have left. That's their that's their option to make money um, now that they have left this trading block and, and and so on and so forth. And and I mean, is there what is what can the UK like economically be if it if it does clean itself up? Well, you know? I think this, this Russia and China are rather different here. That all advanced economies have a serious problem with their dependence with um, their dependence with with Russia. I mean, sorry, with their dependence with China. And China is deeply integrated into our supply chain. It's a huge investor in the West. We're huge investors there. Um, many Western industries could barely survive without their Chinese, um, you know, selling to the Chinese market and manufacture there. And Russia's not in the same category. And I think although the people in the city who are dependent on Russia 
are a noisy lobby. They're quite a small one, and, and you know, Russian money is a, is a very small fraction of what the city does. There's vast quantities, you know, whether it's asset management or insurance, all the sort of shipping stuff, um, huge amounts of you know, foreign exchange trading and so on. And Russia as a sort of Italy-sized economy is it's it's not quite a rounding error, but if if all Russian trade was banned in the city, all Russian shares are delisted, nobody could buy and sell a Russian bond, nobody could take no bank or lawyer or accountant could take on a Russian client. Yeah, it'd be a few people, it would be quite inconvenienced, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. If you said that about China, it would be an earthquake. And so there's a, a complete difference in dimensions on that. I think you're right that there's a, that, that Brexit has a role. Um, some of the biggest backers of Brexit were oddly rather pro-Russian, and we don't quite know where they made their money. That's a whole other whole other topic. Um, but I think that the, um, the, the 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 obvious way to counter Russia would be through very close cooperation with the European Union, because the European Union is in a position to bargain effectively with Putin if it wanted to, and perhaps with a bit of British input it could do so more effectively we that that's been um derailed a bit but i don't think at the moment that there's a danger that britain is sort of so adrift in the world post brexit it'll end up going very soft on russia or teaming up with russia because russia is just not that attractive in the 19th century, you could say an Anglo-Russian alliance was really quite important. You know, two big countries on the, with the, you know, the French and Germans in the middle of Europe, and we're the big ones on the outside, so we should talk. But I just don't think we're, we're in that sort of 19th century world, at least not now. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, I, I guess I, it's, in, 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 it's not just financial services. I mean, it, you know, we struggle with this also in the United States, the kind of entrenched professional services interests that have become kind of the kleptocrat services industry, you know, and, and oppose any reform that one might try to make or, you know, kind of just knee-jerk uh, opposition to, you know, uh, uh, any kind of reporting requirements or anything like that. And, and you know, one of, the, one of the other things that often comes across uh, my desk are lawyers. Uh, and, and of course, lawyers, uh, when, you, when you look at those that work for kleptocrats, it's always the top 200 Anglo-American law firms. And it, and it really is just kind of Anglo-American. There's, there's really like nobody else in here that does the same level of work. Um, and of course, British lawyers are in particular demand because of the British courts being kind of open to the whole world, being the courts for all these kind of, uh, uh, kind of elite disagreements and dictatorships, or to use British libel laws to, to, to shut down Journalists, as we recently saw with with Catherine Belton, although that luckily that case kind of shook out in her favor. But but all all, all various manner of oligarch lawfare and, and and use of the law to pursue political opponents, dissidents, whatever. And I guess how how do you see that? And and how can the how can the United Kingdom kind of cease its role as kind of the court the 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 ersatz court system for dictatorship? I think that there's a excellent book by Oliver Bullo um, called Moneyland, um, which outlines some of this. And there's another one um, which is coming out soon called Britain Butler to the World, where he says that we are, you know, basically we make our money by being um, servile to rich people. And uh, that's you know, a very fair allegation. It is, it is only a small part of what Britain does, but it taints our reputation um, in everything else. 
One very important thing is for the United States, which has now finally got some gas in the tank when it comes to countering kleptocracy, not least thanks <laughs> to your own efforts, um, should be saying to Britain, yeah, if you want to be treated like the um, you know, Nauru and the BVI, you're going the right way about it. And pressure pressure from the United States, particularly with this government, um, is extremely effective. And I would love to see the um, supposed British-American trade deal, which was one of the great, supposedly one of the great jewels in the post-Brexit crown, um, that that should include some counter-kleptocracy elements, like, you know, clean up your shell yeah. companies. And that actually, in a way, might be not bad, because Britain could then say to the United States, Sean, you do the same for North Dakota, and it might be a sort of win-win on, 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 on both sides. So I think that there's, there's room to put pressure on in that respect. I think that the... Um, there's a particular problem with our professional classes, bankers, lawyers and accountants, that they feel it's basically risk free. And, and some of them will even argue it's their professional duty as a lawyer. Who am I to say that some poor <laughs> misunderstood Russian doesn't have access to justice? And yeah, Mr. Berezovsky must have his day in court. And it'd be a scandal if just because he's a foreign. Ain't that the thing? Yeah. And, and they, they, they make this argument with tremendous sort of pomposity as if they are the great sort of, uh, you know, a, 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 I've even been accused of being racist on the grounds. Are you saying that Russians shouldn't have access <laughs> oh, no. just because they're Russians? And I think one can do something on, on this. One thing is to say we need clearer proof about source of funds. If you take on these people as clients, do you really have an idea of how they've how they've made their money? Um, so that's that's uh, would 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 clear out some of it. I think this social censure is also very important. Um, that if people feel it's going to be the death of my social life and possibly my professional reput reputation um, for dealing for you know, taking on these people, that will be that will have an effect. At the moment, it doesn't. There's an absolutely no shame involved, but one can manufacture shame. I think visa bans to the United States and um, the possibility of extradition, which is the sort of the opposite of a visa ban, a visa you can't say no to. Um, also have 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 an, have an effect, and I've noticed, and with Cuba, which I'm, I'm not sure I support the policy, but the United States has um, very effectively said if you do business, if you're on the board of a company that does business in Cuba, you can't come to the United States. This actually caught a former editor of The Economist, who was a deputy governor of the Bank of England, one of the pillars of the British establishment, and suddenly found he couldn't go to the United States because he was the director of a mining company that had a share in a mine in Cuba. And so th these sort of things can change um, people's attitude. Um, the whiff of extradition to the United States is one of the few things that really scares people because your criminal justice system with plea bargains and all the rest of it and the enormous costs of defence and no legal aid, um, this is, make, is a much more um, unpleasant environment than in Britain, where we uh, almost on principle never, never, never prosecute white collar crime. So as before, there's no silver bullet, but there is a great deal of you know, small things that could be done that would um, help um, tip tip playing field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so would you target you target the British professional class with these things? You think the Brits could could go for that? If if I mean, it sounds like to some extent we've been doing that, as you say, with this Economist editor. Um, but but if 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 the United States said, you know, sanctioned a British lawyer for his work for kleptocrats, I mean, do you, how do you think that would be perceived by the British government? Um, well, I think it yeah, it would if if the British government had been told very bluntly by the um, United States that um, uh, you know w w that this is a uh, um, unacceptable, 
um, it would fit into a sort of you know, foreign policy narrative that I think many British people would welcome, actually. I mean, I'm always going on about the pinstriped accomplices who have the be- taken the best education and the most privileged life this country has to offer and then spend their life making even more money um, by working for our enemies. And it, it doesn't go down very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, there's, there's a funny analog there with, of course, our oligarch sanctions, right? Because, I mean... It, you can do all sorts of sanctions that people don't understand, but when you hit the oligarchs, when you hit Deripaska, when you hit Sechin, the Russian people understand that, you know, and, and they look at these guys and they're like, well, these guys stole everything from the country, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's great. If the USA is sanctioning them, they must be like on our side. So it's, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, an interesting analog. So let me, let me kind of, you know, bring this sort of discussion to a close by talking about um, talking with you about some of what the USA is doing, um, because as you say, the USA is going to play a big role in in pressuring um, or 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 leading some of this stuff. And and to me, if if we could do it with the UK, that would be really where we want to be. But you know, th- th- it has been quite a year. Um, we we do now have this counter corruption strategy. Um, and and I mean, what are your? How have you perceived everything that's going on in the USA? Uh, is the USA on the right track? Does it need to do more? I mean, you know, what what kind of policies, what kind of learning does the does the UK need to do from the USA? What kind of learning does the USA need to do from the UK, and so on? As I said before, there's no silver bullet on this, and whatever anybody does, there will always be more to do. And so I would be, I, I don't think we're. It's rather like terrorism. We're never, we're never, we're never going to um, be able to declare victory and go home on this there's just too 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 much and, and what we can really try and do is to displace the dirty money squeeze the balloon and push it onto the margins of our financial system and our political system we'll never be able to stop you know the sort of hawala transfers between the somali pirates and their um backers in the united arab emirates or right. something like that but at least it's you know no longer so so i think you've, you've got to think how do we defend our political system that the, the, the most important thing is our decision making because if our decision making is being skewed by foreign influence operations then we won't be able to defend ourselves against those foreign influence operations so i think um i know it's every american's least favorite subject but campaign finance reform um, is something is 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 part of the answer. Where where does the where does kind of the Biden administration go from here, and 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 how does that relate to what we're kind of seeing in the UK? Which of course you know the UK is in a you know it seems like in a little bit of a in a little bit of a bind right now, in a little bit of a tough spot. I think we're all in a tough spot. I'm not sure any. I think every country is worried about Chinese influence, um, more or less. The uh, I, th- I think that, that Britain is in a particularly difficult position because we have um, soured our relations with the most of the European Union and we are not getting on terribly well with the Biden administration. So I think there's a, a particular problem here. I think with the Biden administration, I'm delighted that kleptocracy is on the agenda. And, and that's obviously a bipartisan thing. It's uh, And it's uh, particularly commendable to see um, you know, cooperation across the aisle on that. It's a, a rare sight in Washington these days. And I think there's still room for a great deal more action. I would love to see FinCEN um, running with tremendous vigor and efficiency and being seen as one of the best places to work in the whole federal government because it has such an exciting and important job. And I think it it would be fair to say that's not the case at the moment. 
Uh, so, and I think there's there's room for the toilet bowl is what they they call their building. Yes, <laughs> and, and, I, and like, I think there's particularly kind of room to try and integrate the criminal justice and national security agenda, and on the whole, um, merits and promotions in the DOJ and FBI um, come as a result of prosecuting. Uh, crimes within the United States. Now you have you know, a degree of jurisdiction outside the United States, and it would be very good to see um, legal attaches and embassies around the world being tasked with going after um, corruption um, when it's a national security threat to the United States. In the same way that they go after terrorism. So you know, put it put very crudely, if we tr- if we dealt with illicit finance when it's hostile state activity the same way as we deal with illicit finance when it's terrorism related, um, that would be a big step forward. And the United States, with the most powerful counterterrorism uh, operation in the world, is you know, well-placed, I think, to, 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 to take the lead on that. Um, but this isn't a, something that any country can do on its own. We all um, we are only really as strong as the weakest link. In, and there are, we, we need to both improve our own acts, but also help other countries to do that. And so pressure on Austria, for example, would be important on Luxembourg, yeah. Liechtenstein, um, all these, um, Cyprus, all these offshore centres um, need to know that their access to the developed world's financial centres or the rich world's, or the big world, big financial centres um, is conditional on them applying the same sort of um, checks and scrutiny. And of course, we're in a much stronger position to do that if we've, we've, if we've applied those rules to ourselves. Well, boy, I mean, music to my ears, and that we have talked about on the podcast before, you know, treat treat kleptocracy, treat counter-kleptocracy like we treated counter-terrorism, you know, and, and a lot of the same tools apply, as you've, as you've pointed out, a lot of the tools are different, a lot of the tools are separating, a lot of the new tools we'll need are separating, um, as, as you've established, kind of the, the licit stuff from the illicit stuff, you know, and, and how do we do that, and that's kind of the, I, I you know, one of the, one of the, critical instruments for that in the U.S. context, at least over the last few years, has been the Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, which had kind of gone unenforced for a very long time and then suddenly uh, was enforced again and now is kind of in the news all the time. I'm wondering, is this the kind of tool that that the UK needs at this point? Or, or what's your, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm very much in favor of, of having regulation for lobbyists, because I think part of the answer is transparency. I don't think it's a silver bullet and um, there, is, there will be a danger of applying it too strictly. I think we can all look at what uh, has been going on in Australia and learn lessons from that because um, Australia's mm. passed, uh, I think, the most the toughest um, package of laws on foreign um, influence operations that any democracies um, ever implemented. And it, you know, for example, I think I'm quoting this correctly, that it's a criminal offence to interfere with the democratic right or duty of an Australian citizen. Now, we don't have much um, in the way of case law um, to go on this to see you know, how, how, how the courts are going to apply this in practice. But I think something in that direction will help. Um, but it's only one element. Um, I, it, yeah. We also need the um, social and normative censure, which I mentioned earlier, we need better regulation professional bodies, which I haven't mentioned, but you should worry that you are, you could lose your license to practice in whatever your profession is. Um, if it's a licensed one for taking on the wrong sort of clients or um, helping cover up their activities. And um, and then, of course, that the you know, these international 
um, things as well. But if you can puncture the climate of impunity, at least make people think that whatever I'm doing wrong, there's a risk. Um, that will um, have a, 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 a starts the sort of gives gives a, the, the the momentum that we need. Um, that risk can be anything from a, a fine through to extradition or a visa ban or anything else. But we but at the moment um, collaborating with kleptocrats is basically risk free, and that's what we've got to change. Well, I love I love that line. Puncture the climate of impunity. That's that's exactly right, Edward. Thank you so much for being with us today. Wonderful insights. Uh, and, you know, keep at it. Keep up the fight. You know, you've been keeping it up for a, quite a long time now, yes. so I have no doubt you'll keep it up in the future. When, when I started this, I had a full head of hair, hair and a beard and was about 30 years younger. But um, <laughs> thanks so much, um, Paul and, and Phil, um, for hosting me. And I will gladly share this podcast with my 82,000 closest friends on social media. And, um, and if you're in London for any reason, do come and uh, you, if you, um, watch, watch us campaigning. Yes, for sure. Thank you so much, Edward. Thank you. See ya. Bye. Making a Killing is produced by Phil Hegseth and kindly supported by the Kleptocracy Initiative's parent organisation, Hudson Institute. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, please subscribe and share with your friends. And if you have time, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple or wherever it is you get your podcasts as it really helps get the word out. That's all from us. We'll be back next time.